So Learn UX design is a bunch of things, but it is a lot of those heuristics for doing good interaction design, just the most important ones that are kind of running through my head, the different strategies, the ideas that I need to apply as widely as possible. Welcome to the What is UX podcast, the show where we interview design leaders about their journey and experience so that you may learn from them. I'm your host, Peck Pompat. Hello, everyone. On today's episode, we have Eric Kennedy, the designer and CEO of Learn UI Design, an online uh, course uh, teaching platform where Eric uh, teaches not just UI design, but also has courses on UX design as well. So welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks, Peg. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, just for a little bit of the audience, some of Eric's background is he spent some time as a program manager at Microsoft and then after that, going as a solo designer. And uh, we'd love to hear the story of how you fell into teaching classes online as well. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was in college, I tried programming for the first time, sort of fell in love with it, thought this is what I'm going to be doing, and quickly realized after doing some internships that programming your own like side project, your own little hobby project, is pretty different than working at a real company doing real programming work. And that to me wasn't as interesting, wasn't as fun. So I thought, okay, what am I going to do now? And I kind of landed in the PM role. I really liked the idea and the times where even in my internships, we'd get together and trying to decide what do the users want? What features are we going to do next? What makes sense for how the market is moving and things like that. And so after college, I ended up joining Microsoft. I was a PM there for a couple of years and I was really on about half UX and then half just more kind of traditional PM stuff. And what I found is the days where I was doing the UX stuff were like, I would just leave work with a, like a little spring in my step. I could not get enough of wireframing and talking to users, doing usability studies. And at some point I was just like, if this is what I love so much about my job, why don't I ju just do this, right? Like these three things, that's called being a UX designer. I should just quit and be a UX designer. So I ended up quitting my job and I thought, okay, I'll be a freelancer. And that way I can get a breadth of experience. I can do a bunch of different projects for a bunch of different clients. And then when I find, you know, that perfect client, I'll settle down with them and, you know, live happily ever after. <laughs> and the first kind of bump in the road there was I found that most of these UX clients, I would do these wireframes and kind of some some user research, figure out exactly basically the boxes and arrows version of what they were to build. But then when it came time to do the visual design, I was like, not so sure, really not so confident. But it was kind of clear to me that as a beginning freelancer, if someone asks you like, hey, can you can you do the visual design too? Like you just got to, to some degree, you don't say yes to everything. But I was like, yeah, yeah, of course I can do that. And then like, how do I do any of this stuff? Because my first visual designs were really, really bad. Like just when I look at them now, they kind of, they kind of turn my stomach. It's like worse than my students. So I came, I came from just like the bottom of the barrel visual design wise. And I just kind of had to like teach myself some of this stuff. It was just sort of this scramble of like going to dribble or opening up like the best apps on my phone. Just every time some app came out and it was like, this one looks really nice. Like just download it for the heck of it and like try and study what's different about my designs and their designs and why do theirs look so good? And like, is there some lesson that I could take? and apply it to my own designs. So really, even though I was doing UX 
kind of day to day and sort of that that side of things, thinking about usability and interaction design and research. The UI slash visual design side of things was really where I was trying to teach myself as much stuff as I could. And I just, I found that by and large, so many of the articles, this is like a decade ago too. So like so many of the articles about visual design on the web were not useful. They didn't pass this like fundamental litmus test that I had for a design article, which is I've got a crappy looking design. If I read your article and I apply its lessons to my design, will my design actually look better? And for like 90% of these articles, the answer was no, it won't. Like if you read about a baseline grid, that won't make your design look better. It's wild because it's like this art school wisdom that generations of designers have have kind of passed down. But does do baseline grids help you? No. Do type scales help you? In rare circumstances. Does using color theory help you? Almost not at all. And yet this is like <laughs> what so many articles were about. So I just kind of like started collecting these ideas in my mind, my like little toolkit of like, here's the actually practical UI design advice that makes a difference. And then in 2014, I ended up publishing my first article online, unexpectedly went viral, but it's called seven rules for creating gorgeous UI. And it was like seven of the kind of like most important tips that I had learned about user interface design. And it, it was a little bit silly in retrospect. It took me two years to realize that like if, if, you know, million plus people were going to read this article, like maybe that meant that there's actually a market need for advice like this. And maybe I should create a course on this kind of stuff. And so eventually got around to it, signed up for Teachable, the course platform, which is fantastic, and just kind of dove into that. And now I've been working on Learn UI Design and its sister course, Learn UX Design for the last five years. Still do some client work. I never want to be the design teacher who doesn't also design like I want to make sure I still have my head in the game and I know what it's you know what's what's happening in the industry but for the most part the client work is secondary and a lot of time and effort goes into these courses even now so that's kind of how I got here it was a little bit accidental but it's it's been a fun journey and I want to congratulate you and, and give you a high five for having thousands of students on your on your courses that that to me is a huge accomplishment so, Thanks. So, you know, congratulations. You know, if you like speaking of those seven design tips, you know, maybe part of this, it'd be great to see, like, you know, if you had to maybe update that, you know, could you give us those tips today and for, for, for our audience and listeners, how, how, what, what are those tips? Sure. So I think most of them still stand as some of the most important lessons that I would tell beginners. And I'll just say folks can like Google this. I won't necessarily go over the things that are in that article, maybe incidentally, but like we'll link, we'll link to it. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, seven rules for creating gorgeous UI. And if I had to update it, I think there was one thing I knew pretty soon afterwards that I missed, and that was just the value of alignment. And so actually, if folks sign up for Design Hacks, which is this design newsletter that I run, the first email they'll get is kind of the eighth tip about alignment and just the power of, of doing this. And, and, and honestly, for me, it was like a non-trivial recognition that in these really professional designs that looked really good, 99% of the content would be aligned with something else, either, uh, you know, along the edges of the box or aligned by its center line. But, you know, both are totally valid forms of alignment. And so what I didn't, and that could be vertical and it could also be horizontal. So you can look through these designs and just start kind of like tracing it out. Like, and as a beginning designer, I just didn't pay attention to that. Maybe stuff would be kind of left aligned, but a lot of things would just have a very ragged right margin where I just kind of pick widths, you know, from a hat and 
And it, <laughs> so it would just look a little bit sloppier, but there's a lot of tricks to as m give kind of the same, take those same number of elements, but make them feel much more aligned. And if you kind of learn those tricks and, and do that meticulously, your designs will look a lot cleaner, a lot, oftentimes a lot simpler, a lot neater and more professional. So that was one thing where I was like, oh yeah, I missed that. That should have been, that should have <laughs> been in the original article. What's uh, what's another tip? Let's let's go through all those tips. Okay, yeah, we've got a, <laughs> we've got a bunch. So I consider alignment kind of a sort of in the realm of of layout. So let's mm -hmm. jump to something else. Let's jump to something like typography. So in typography, I think that one of the most common beginner mistakes is people pick fonts that have a little bit too much personality, a little bit too much attitude, and I think it's like just. I don't know, maybe like a natural human thing to see a fun looking font and be like, that looks fun. I think it's going to be great for my project. Like I remember doing this, like making art, you know, on the computer as like a second grader in the learning lab or whatever, like the the lobster font or the, you know, Comic Sans or whatever it is. Just going, <laughs> this looks cool. This is surely going to work. And it's like, no, it it doesn't. It's just so often a bad choice because in the professional world of design, most clients want something that's like pretty clean and simple. And so you have some leeway. Oftentimes they'll use that phrase too, clean and simple. And I think some designers are sick of it, but it's also a huge opportunity because if you can master that and, and ex especially kind of explore the realm of what you can put into a clean and simple design, that's great. You're gonna have a lot of fun with it. So when you're picking fonts, I think one of the most important things you can do is look for fonts that kind of hint at the brand you're trying to convey, but don't they don't just like hammer users over the head with it, right? So if you're looking for something like, let's just use the Comic Sans example, because it's like the classic one that everyone loves to hate on. <laughs> so it, we're, it's, it's a professionally designed font that was designed for a reason, right? And in some cases, it ostensibly works, although maybe now it's just too culturally, uh, it has its own place where you can never really use it. Become but something, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So something like that, it's supposed to be friendly, right? It's supposed, it's in a comic book. It's supposed to feel a little hand-drawn. There's that human touch. It's not, it's not totally professional or uptight or stingy or whatever, you know, it's just supposed to be like warm, welcome and, and kind of open and friendly. And that's totally cool because that's a very common brand or aesthetic or vibe that people will want in their site. Even if they say, oh, I want something that's clean and simple. A lot of times they want it to be just on the friendly side of clean and simple, not on the like professional and I don't mean to say those things are totally opposed, but oftentimes if you think of them as kind of opposed, you know which direction to bring your design in. So if someone says, yeah, I, I want this, I want this site, but it's got to be just a little bit friendly. It's like, you're not actually going to be using some font that's like really squared off or something. You're not going to necessarily even be using a font like where all the, the terminals, the ends of the letter forms are perfectly parallel. They're all horizontal. They're all vertical because that just feels like a little bit too crisp. Instead, you want something that's got a little bit of that kind of like human warmth or, but in a very subtle way, it's got that friendliness, but in a very subtle way. So what's an example of this? Fira Sans is a fantastic Google font, free to use. And it's, it's called a humanist font, which meant nothing to me as a beginning designer, but what it, the important lesson behind that is ultimately the basis of this font, Fira Sans, is in human handwriting, like drawing with a broad nibbed pen. And so even though now it's just this digital representation of that handwriting, and so it's kind of cleaned up and a little bit sharper and crisper, it still has just a little bit of like humanness to it, that sort of warmth or whatever. You could also go with something that's like 
slightly rounded, right? Oftentimes that kind of has that friendly vibe. You find a font that's otherwise quite clean, simple, subtle, plain, neutral, but there's just ever so much rounding. Rubik is one of the first ones that comes to mind as far as free fonts go, where again, it's not like smashing the user over the head. Look, we're friendly. We're, we're hilarious. We're warm and open and welcoming here. It's just, it, it, it says that, but subtly. And so that's like, I think a very important font choosing tip for beginners. Subtlety. I think the what comes to mind is is that term subtlety instead of kind of over your head. Yes, hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what about colors? What about colors? I would say, and and by the way, I'm going to say <clears throat> all of these things that I rate as kind of the most important lessons. I basically have some writing out there accessible for free about this. So if you search pairing fonts, learn UI design or pairing fonts, Eric, you'll see right at the top, there's going to be my article on pairing fonts, um, which talks about some of the stuff that we just talked about with picking fonts. Likewise, I think the very, the most important tip about color that I could talk about is probably the power of making variations on a base color or a brand color that you pick. I also do have a, an article about this. It's called Color and UI Design, a Practical Framework. Peck, I know you can just like throw a link at the bottom for... Yep. Yeah. So people can go and read that for the full scoop. But the the like overview of it is, you know, again, as a beginning designer, I kind of got this impression that color was about color theory or like, you know, you'd see these like five swatches. Here's the colors I'm going to put in my in my website. And they look nice as like five rectangles on the top of a screen. But then as soon as you try and like, what do you do? Like use one color for a button color and another color for a header and then like, Another is like some, I don't know, decorative element or something like things can get kind of messy, even if you have these colors that look nice together as rectangles. And so when I was like just in like analysis mode, trying to figure out what makes apps look good or what makes designs look good. One of the things I realized is so many of those, especially the clean and simple apps use basically one or two colors, very few colors, but then they'll make variations on it. And so uh, in this article that you can link to, I think I bring up the example of Facebook. The design has changed a little bit, but the overall concept is the same where like Facebook has this one brand blue that the logo is in and might appear a few other places on the site. But then throughout the rest of the site, almost everything else is some shade of gray or some shade of this blue. Like they keep the same hue, but they make it a lighter variation or they make it a darker variation. And, and they do that based on the role that every single element has to play. So if you have some, you know, brand color that's in the logo or whatever, and you go to apply it to a giant background that's like full width on desktop and 800 pixels tall and whatever, you might want to use that same color, but you also might want to make a variation that's not as rich. So in the language of HSB, which is my preferred color framework, you're going to move the saturation down. And maybe you'd move the brightness up, maybe you'd move it down, it depends on some things. But the idea is you don't want it to be quite as eye-popping, which often translates to saturation in the HSB color system. And so you're going to be making this this variation on it there. And conversely, you know, maybe you have like a header and then under all your subheaders, you have a little underline, you know, under the first character or two characters, just something. Actually, I do this on the Learn UI Design site, but there's tons of other sites that do little mini underlines just to add a pop of color or some pizzazz. And um, 
if you're doing it there, you might actually pick a richer variation of that color and try and make it catch your eye a little bit more than the base color just because it's so small and just because it's really like not going to overly attract attention. It's the easiest thing in the world if you have a giant header filled, you know, every pixel on the screen is colored, then it's way, it's, it's super easy to go overboard with that. So you kind of make variations on your base color depending on the role that each element has to play. And then as you start to do that, you see, okay, here's how I can boil this down into maybe, you know, a set of 10 or a set of 20 colors that I'm going to use and, and be consistent with. But even that is not necessary. I think the fundamental skill is kind of making those variations and really using as few colors as necessary. Like maybe that's one color, maybe that's two colors, but it's not super common where you have a, a site that just needs like five totally different bright in your face kind of colors that all feel weighty and, and, and so on. Yeah. I, I've always, you know, there, there's sites that generate swatches and I've always felt it weird and strange to your point when there's like five swatches and they're all bright colors and like, oh, how am I going to accomplish this here when, you know, it all comes down to, Hey, if you have one or two, and then they're just variations of that, I think makes, makes a lot of sense. So well put. I wanted to ask about your UI and UX courses. Who is the typical persona or type of student that would be a good fit for, for your, your courses? Yeah, totally. So I'll just answer by who's in the courses already. And basically the two biggest groups, neither is the majority, but these are kind of the two biggest groups is UX designers and developers followed by people who are already UI designers or visual designers or graphic designers. And so I think these folks come into the course for a variety of reasons or both of the courses, at least for learn UI design, which is kind of the there's the first course I did and still has the most people in it and sort of the primary one. It obviously still the domain name. It's a lot of folks who they have some reason to try and make their software look better. So they just need to improve the visuals. Maybe that's because it's something they're working on at work. They have a work project and oftentimes their company will like pay for it. But it also could be like you have a side project or you have you're you're an entrepreneur. You're doing something where you have your own thing and you need to make it look nice because you know that if it doesn't, people are just going to like close that tab and move on to the next thing. And so you just have to teach yourself to some degree, kind of get like part of that 80-20 and, uh, and run with it. But yes, it typically is like developers and UX designers. And it's a mix of folks who want to do something for work or work on a side project, start their own thing, or again, who are already doing visual design. I also find that the students who do the best are like kind of self-starters. If you're someone who's like taught yourself things before, online course is a great fit. If you are someone where you like want the structure of a, you know, like a, a teacher who who wants you to turn in homework every on certain days or whatever, then it's probably not as good of a fit. But yeah, like lots of kind of like self-starters or um Self-accountable. Yeah. yeah. Someone is self, self-accountable. If you need yeah. someone else to hold yourself accountable to, that might not be for you. Uh, I, I was very amazed that you have students from Apple and Meta and Google, and, you know, Stripe. These are, you know, some would say that these companies are already very designed forward. So the fact that they're taking design courses from you is speaks volumes of uh, kind of. Yeah. Know. Yeah. No, it's super cool and definitely an honor. Yeah. So are they UX designers and developers typically at, at these companies and, and probably not UI designers? That's yeah, you know, I don't survey everyone um, or not everyone responds to the survey. And uh, in particular for the folks at those companies, 
I'm not sure, like without going into too many details, like I know, for instance, one student who I've been working with and doing some coaching is at a, like a Fang company. If we still call it that. Is it Mang now? Yeah, it's yeah, meta. Fang. <laughs> Fang or yeah. Mang or whatever it is. And he's a developer working on some internal tooling, right? Yeah. So they just don't get a ton of design resources. And yeah. for him, it was like, okay, cool. Like I, you know, I know where to go to get this. So there's some of that. Yeah, definitely UX designers I've heard of from some of these companies you mentioned. So yeah, I think it runs the gamut. Yeah. 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 And, and this is probably something they can get the company to pay for. Yeah. 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 It's a no brainer. It's like, well, you either give me a designer, which costs way more, or you just pay for this course. And yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. To, yeah. Great problem solving there. Tell us a little bit about the UX course. You know, you've established uh, the UI credibility. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. So I would say this is kind of how I fell into it. Because when I started the UI course, I, I didn't actually think I would ever have two courses. I thought, oh, okay, like this is my thing. Learn UI design. Hence the domain name. I pro It's probably not a great marketing move to have a learn UI design course and a learn UX design course. But here we are. And what I realized that kind of made me think that this UX course was necessary is I'd see folks come out of these UX boot camps, oftentimes because they wanted to improve their visual design. But I realized a lot of times these UX boot camps really have this emphasis on trying to teach how to create all the UX deliverables and less emphasis on like pure interaction design. So consequently, I would see people who like could make personas and, and make, you know, the all the charts and diagrams and do the user research. But the end product that they would have, uh, even apart from the visuals, would often have like these sorts of usability mistakes where it was just like, there's no way that that should be shipped. You know, not I, la I laugh at this because I've, I've seen those as, as mentor to UX boot camps and stuff. Yeah. And it's not to, I mean, I think that it's very easy to teach deliverables. And so there's sort of a reason why that's what makes it into these, these boot camps. But ultimately like, Oh, what's even a specific example. I remember one again with a student who I was doing some coaching with and like they had, a, they had a sidebar, which was kind of like a nav, but basically like every item on the nav looked like a button. It was styled as a button with kind of rounded, rounded, a rounded rectangle or, you know, rounded corners. Yeah. And you just simply never see a side nav where everything looks like a button or like maybe in a video game or something where you have a very strong brand, but and, and, and an app that's like large. This was, I think, something related to business, right? It was like a, like a CRM or something, right? Of that, of that accord. And so this was just like, there's not an appropriate way to style those things, right? And I would see a lot of examples like this where it was like, that's just wrong. And you don't even need to do usability tests to know that. Instead, like, I, I mean, the, the, the fancy design term in UX is heuristic evaluation. But mm -hmm. in my mind, like the way I think of this is there's, there's just a couple phrases, a couple phrases, a couple key ideas that if you know these phrases, these heuristics, you're going to do a much better job if they're always kind of running through your head. And so one of them, and this is one that's featured in Learn UX Design, which applies to this specific example, is uh, Jacob's Law. And so, like, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but for everyone else, Jacob Nielsen, like, absolute a giant of the UX world, fantastic content on usability and interaction design. And one of the things that he said very early on in, in the kind of the history of UX is that for the most part, your users spend more time on other people's apps, other people's software. And so if you're trying to solve an interaction problem, in most cases, you should make your app work like theirs. You shouldn't reinvent the wheel, 
because like one, it's more work, but two, then your users have to learn how to use your wheel when they already know how to use the first wheel. Like, why would you do that to them? So if there's a generally kind of accepted standard that works when you're doing usability testing and your user group knows about it, like don't, don't try and like reinvent the wheel for the sake of creativity. Just before the show, you kind of said, oh man, we're just like these glorified pattern matchers to some degree as UX designers. But I actually think that's, that's exactly right. You're trying to think of these abstract problems and then say, what is the pattern that really fits this? Um, like, is this pattern a column of buttons? No, 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 no. This is a nav, and here's the way that navs are done. I'm going to kind of follow that paradigm so that the second people see that, they know, oh, this is a nav. And it's a secondary nav because it's on the left-hand side, but it doesn't go all the way to the top. Instead, the top nav goes full width, and that makes it kind of like primary. So if I want to go to a primary destination on the site, I need to go to the top nav. And if I need to go to a sort of sub-destination, I'm going to look on the left. And they can know all of that in under a second just by you laying out things in exactly the same way that so many other sites do and kind of using those those paradigms or like following these different heuristics. So learn UX design is a bunch of things, but it is a lot of those heuristics for doing good interaction design, just the most important ones that are kind of running through my head, the different strategies, the ideas that I need to apply as widely as possible. And then it's also basically a video and written catalog of best practices and design patterns for so many of the places where, like I said, you don't want to reinvent the wheel. So this is everything from like navigation to error messages to input controls, text controls. Like in all of these cases, if you're doing a date control, it's like, man, there's a lot of ways to do a date picker wrong. But guess what? People have made those mistakes. (laughs) We know what those mistakes are. Wouldn't it be nice if you just had a video or a cheat sheet explanation of exactly what mistakes to avoid and exactly what to include if you're doing a date picker? Oh, and by the way, you know, it's going to be slightly different if most people need to pick a date in the near future versus if there's a wider array of dates to pick. Like, so blah, blah, blah. You just go into that. And yeah, so it's all these heuristics, these design patterns, and then plenty on communicating design, selling the value of design to your team, because sadly, that is still so necessary and still so important and so on. Yeah. You know, another word that comes to mind besides heuristics is like standards and conventions. You know, so many of this is my, my analogy is if you're trying to design a car, like for the most part, you know, you can get into any car and you know how to drive it. But if you're designing a car and everything you do about it breaks convention for the sake of it, for the sake of originality, then people are not going to know how to drive your car and you're going to crash. And like that, and that's why. Yeah, it's totally true. It's totally true. And it's something that I actually see on both sides of the kind of the UX UI divide where people are like, oh, I want to like find my personal style. I want to like be creative or whatever. I think in part is because like design to many people feels like art that actually pays well. And I don't think that's quite it. Right. Like art doesn't really have a goal. Design does have a goal and 99% of the time it's a business goal. Like that's, that's why you're making it. You're not just making something to hang up on your fridge. Like it actually needs to sell more stuff or get more people to click or download or do what or don't donate or whatever it is. Right. And so you have these quasi objective metrics of what you actually need to accomplish. And so by and large, like, yeah, get creative in how you solve those, but realize that a lot of that creativity is not going to come from things like breaking established interaction patterns. Like, yeah, yeah, that's the wrong place to do it. 
And so Eric has a really cool free newsletter. If you're, you know, if you're still kind of maybe on the fence or you don't feel like you need a UI course and UX course, but you could use some free tips. Eric has a newsletter called Design Hacks, which I would totally encourage you to sign up for. And we'll leave it in the links in the show notes as well. I actually experienced it myself firsthand when I just, when I signed up for the newsletter, I love that you have like animated GIFs to kind of showcase and illustrate tips. So yeah, what, what can users, subscribers expect with the Design Hacks newsletter? Totally. So uh, this is actually kind of exciting to talk about because this year I've spent a bunch of time restructuring how the whole newsletter thing works. But what I've tried to do is just take, like you were kind of asking for, those like most important design tips for beginners. And to be honest, the newsletter is like mostly on the visual design side of things. There are some interaction design tips. They're all kind of like interwoven in. But especially if you want just a little short tip that should make a difference past that litmus test of helping you make a design that looks bad into a design that looks better. The newsletter has little short tips. They start out coming a few times a week and then it sort of becomes less and less frequent over time. But it's some of the most impactful lessons for me as a beginning designer and also for, I think, all the subscribers. So, yep, it's it's all free and it's just like a fantastic little sequence. That's all on ConvertKit, which is another great tool if you want to start a newsletter. Very cool. Let's transition to maybe, you know, we, we've talked about kind of like the, the content and, and what the audience can get out of this, but I wanted to talk to you about maybe the business and the vision of Learn UI Design and what's next and sure. where do you see this going? Yeah, to be honest, I'm... I don't have a super strong like five-year plan or something like that. A lot of this is kind of taking it one day at a time. The course has already done very well, so I'm like really pleased about that. But um, it's just, you know, looking at what seems interesting. On the docket for this year, I actually do want to create a third course about something that I think is maybe, I'm not going to publicly commit to anything right now, but I think it's maybe the most requested thing or would be the most useful to students based on what questions they're emailing me with or posting on the Slack channels. So that third course could be super cool. And then plus, there's just always updates to be made to the existing courses. So between those keeps me pretty busy. And then like I said, I'm also doing some client work. So definitely have enough going on. But yeah. yeah. It's, it's always great to have that that feedback and people are asking for more. So you're basically upselling your, your existing audience and, and maybe even cross-selling. Yeah, yeah, no, it's been awesome. And it's kind of cool. Like I almost feel like having run this course now for a few years has been a, like a little bit of a cheat code because I've just finished you know, a couple months ago going through and re-recording every single video in the course based on all the mistakes. This is the Learn UI Design course. The Learn UX Design, I haven't done this for yet. But in the UI Design course, re-recording it based on all the mistakes that I've seen these students make in the, the homeworks that they submit on the Slack channel or the questions that they email me with or whatever. So it's like, it. I think the curriculum already started out very strong. But then, you know, on top of that, I've seen what were, what was kind of like, what were stu- students still struggling with? Like, what are the little gaps that I can fill? And so I took a good swing at that with re-recording all these, adding a bunch of new videos. So now everything is like new or re-recorded since the initial launch of the course, which is very yeah. exciting. Yeah, it's uh, 
I think it's a miss, you know, people who are thinking of starting businesses like these, it's not like a one and done, right? Like this is as you're getting feedback, as you're learning, well, what else are people tripping on? What else, how can this be more valuable or, you know, as things, as maybe even trends get updated and change, you, you probably need to constantly, even though it's content, right? Like it's, I see it as similar to software where it, it, you can't just do it once, one and done. You, you kind of have to keep it alive and, and up. Yeah, it. it is very much a living thing. Yeah, passive income is like kind of true, but there's <laughs> still a job. <laughs> it's so. a, yeah, yeah. Uh, and how long have you been? Uh, five years-ish. Wow, congrats. Any business, you know, there's there's some amazing statistics, right? Like however many businesses, uh, you know, even make it past five years. You know, so so congrats to you to, to for, for making it that long. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely feel very lucky. Yeah, yeah. Impeccable recently, you know, um reached our 10-year mark uh, as a oh, design, wow. you know, development agency. So I, I can't say it's it was easy, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's definitely been a journey. Totally. Cool. Well, thanks so much for all the tips, Eric. We're gonna leave all this these goodies in, in the show notes. And uh, you know, including the design hacks uh, newsletter link, as well as the UI course and UX course links. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me, Peck. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining us on this episode of What is UX? If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you leave us a review, I'll make sure to shout it out on the show. If you have any questions, send them to questions at whatisux.co and our guest and I will try to answer them on the show. And you can always find us on whatisux.co. See you on the next one.